This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I've been preaching for, writing sermons for about 30 years, which means I've been writing sermon titles for about 30 years. And this is one of my favorite titles ever. I just got to say, I'm really proud of this title. The World's Best Kiss is the title of this sermon. So, um, and I was talking to my um, son-in-law, Father Trevor McMacken. He said, Matt, you know, with titles like that, you could really be a seeker-friendly church, you know? And so that's what we're trying to be here. So um, now you might, I'm not trying to be edgy. I'm not trying to be racy. I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm just simply trying to be biblical. Because this psalm that you heard read has an emotional movement to the psalm. It's moving somewhere. It's taking us somewhere. And I think the emotional apex of this psalm is verse 10, which we'll get to later in depth, where it says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Now, in some cultures, there's the kiss of friendship. In the Bible, we have the kiss of the father who welcomes back his wayward prodigal son, kisses him fervently, it says. There is the nuptial kiss of a groom and a bride on their wedding. So there are, there's the holy kiss, but every time you give or receive a kiss, there is a profound level of vulnerability, openness, a feeling of safety, a feeling of closeness and intimacy. And I think that's what this psalm is getting at, that God comes close, that God loves us more than we could ever imagine. And he wants to draw near to us in all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our human flaws. God wants to draw near. You heard one picture of God's love from the book of, of Isaiah that God loves his vineyard. But one of the highest pictures of God's love throughout the Bible is God is a groom looking for his bride, loving his bride, pouring, laying down his life for his bride, which we see all throughout the Old Testament and the prophets. And then the, one of the last scenes in the Bible is this marriage supper of the Lamb. So it is a beautiful picture of closeness. So my goal for this sermon is simply to walk through this text and to help us receive, bask in, exalt in, rejoice in, be transformed by the incredible good news of the love of God for his people. Now, you can follow along in your bulletin because it's printed in there, but I prefer that you actually open your Bible because there's something in the Bible that did not get into the Psalm, two, Psalm 85. You can turn to Psalm 85 on page 493 in your Bibles. And this is a, what's called a national lament. So a group of people in community who are lamenting some situation that they're going through, and God speaks a word of hope and deep, intimate love in the midst of this national crisis. And I want to break it down into four parts. The four-part is not original. Most Bible scholars will break it down into four parts, although my description of those four parts, it goes like this. You did it before, verses 1 through 3. 
Can you do it again, verses 4 through 7? Oh, yeah, he will, verses 8 and 9, and then, oh, my, look what's coming, verses 10 through 13. Again, that's a Matt Woodley original, but that's basically what, how most Bible scholars would break it down. So let's look first. So first in your Bible, there's something really important here. At the, you'll see that what's called a superscription before the psalm actually starts. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. 116 of the 150 psalms have a superscription, which most scholars say were part of all of the original manuscripts. So this is actually part of the psalm. And it says, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Who are they and why do they matter? Well, they're really important. And the fact that they wrote this psalm says a lot about this, not only this psalm, but a lot about the gospel and what God does and who God is. And I'll get to that later. So just hold on to that thought. But let's begin with the first, God, you did it before. So verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. There are six verbs in there, and they're all in the past tense, talking about, God, what you did. And I just want to walk through some of those. So, Lord, it says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. The word favorable there is a Hebrew word which, which implies affection. It's used earlier in Psalm 44, and it means it's translated as delight. God, you delighted in us. You delighted in our land. It's an unexplained, inexplicable affection affection and tenderness of God for his people. You were favorable. You were, had affection for us, and out of that affection, you did something for us. And notice, it's to your land. So this is, the land is the place where people live. It, it's not only just personal for us, but it's communal. So a land is a place where, where people flourish, where people grow their crops, where people build their homes, where people raise their kids. And so you were favorable to your land, Lord. You did that for us. And you forgave, verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all of their sin. That's a really, covered is a really beautiful word of God's mercy and tenderness towards our sin. See, we would like to think, or we often act like our sin is hidden. Nobody can see it. It's private. It's just me. Nobody can see my lust or my anger or the contempt that I hold for people or the way I judge people or the way I rebel against God or the way I have unbelief in my heart. Nobody can see it. Well, actually, it's wide open to the Lord. He sees it. You know, we're like a little three-year-old kid that's got chocolate all smeared all over his face. Johnny, were you in the chocolate? No, no, not me, Mom. The Lord sees it, and yet what does he do? His goal is to cover it. He exposes it only to cover it. Behold the mercy and the tenderness of God. In verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Wrath is pictured as something that's hot. I don't know if you heard that first reading in chapter Isaiah where the Lord says, I planted my vineyard, I took care of it, and I, I expected fruit from it, but instead of justice, there was injustice. And the Lord is, there's wrath about that. And yet, look at what it says here. In You also, Lord, you withdrew all your wrath. Withdrew is a Hebrew word that's, that's also used to, like, gather in a harvest. So the Lord says, my wrath was out there. I put it out there, but then I took it and I gathered it into myself. I don't want to get too far ahead of things here, but as Christians, I cannot see, I cannot but see a foreshadowing of the cross, which God did to, to put his wrath out there, and yet to take it upon himself. So all of this first section is about we were in trouble, God, and you met us. 
And it was sweet. We went through a sweet season. You met us in the midst of our trouble. And now the psalmist moves, the sons of Korah, they move into this second section. Can you do it again, God? Because we need you now. So verse 4, restore us again. Verse 6, will you not revive us again? And notice that the, the key word there, salvation. Oh, verse 4, O God of our salvation, and the end of this section, and grant us your salvation. We want your salvation, God. We don't just want, we don't just need advice. We don't just need instruction. We need your salvation. Salvation, the, the, probably the, the easiest way for me to define salvation is God's creative power to act on our behalf when we cannot do it ourselves. God's, it's a power, God's creative power to get us out of situations that we can't get out of. So, so we're stuck. We're stuck in certain patterns, certain ways of behaving, certain ways of thinking. We're stuck in a, uh, people are, the poor are stuck in some kind of oppressive situation and they can't get out of it. God's salvation comes to deliver us, to break through, to open a door when there wasn't even a door there in the first place. God puts the door in and then he opens it so we can go through it. And notice verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So <clears throat> I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but as far as I understand it, the, the emphasis of the Hebrew there is, is, is on the word you. Not the word revive, not us, but the word you is the word that is really emphasized and put out front there. You need to do it, God, because we're as good as dead. We can't bring ourselves back to life. You need to raise us from the dead. You need to set us free from oppression. You need to set us free from these sin patterns. Now, 16, uh, not 16 years ago, when I was 16 years old, I remember watching on a TV set this guy talking in this big stadium full of people. And he was holding this big black Bible, and he had this thick, curly, wavy hair slicked back, and he talked in a southern drawl, and it was like everything about it was so uncool to a 16-year-old from the suburbs of Minneapolis. But I was riveted by what he was saying. I was riveted by the message that he was saying. I'd never heard anything like that before. You can say whatever you want about Billy Graham, but Billy Graham led the Lord used him to lead hundreds of thousands of people to faith in the Lord Jesus. And at the time, I was wondering, what is this message? What is he talking about? Well, in a biography of Billy Graham, the historian Grant Wacker put it this way. Here is the essence of Billy Graham's message, which was the essence of the gospel. He said, and I quote, it was a litany of re-words, reform, rebirth, renewal, regeneration, that served as the pivot. Nothing had to stay the same. Everything could be changed. Others found new life, and so can you. In Christ, wayfarers and whole societies can find fresh water in dry wells. That was the essence of his message. When I was writing a draft of this sermon, I had that quote in my notes, and I wrote on the margins, 
I wanted that to be true. I need that to be true today. And then I wrote, this, I will stake my life on this message. I will stake my life on this. And I also wrote this, Lord, I wrote a little prayer, Lord, I am a flawed and sinful man, but I want to live for this, and I want to be willing to die for this if I need be. That important to me and to the gospel. So, Lord, will you do it again? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? May, can you do it now? Can you do it here? Can you do it in my life? Can you do it in my family? Can you do it in my community? Can you do it in my nation? Can you do it again, God? And then verse 8, there's this cool little shift of voice. And it's almost like somebody else is speaking. Some guy, a prophet, sons of Korah, maybe Jesus, maybe I don't know. But somebody says, let me hear what, the, what God the Lord will speak in verse 8. So it's kind of like, hey, hey, just a minute. Wait, I got I to gotta listen. God's saying something. Let me hear. Could you all just be quiet? He's, he's saying something. And what is he saying? He's speaking. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. That incredible Old Testament Hebrew word shalom, universal flourishing and delight. That word that's sprinkled all throughout the prophets, that places of violence will be turned into places of safety, places of where people are lost and confused will find the presence of the Lord, places where tears will be wiped away, places where the hungry will be fed, places where people will come streaming into the house of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. And, and weapons of warfare will be um, beaten into plowshares, and there will be no one to hurt on my holy mountain anymore, says the Lord. All these images of peace. And as a Christian, I cannot help but think of Jesus speaking, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you. I give you a peace that's not of this world. The Lord is speaking peace to his people. That's what he's saying. I want you to have peace. In the midst of your anxiety, I want you to open your heart and receive the peace that I have to give you. I want you to be an agent of peace and peacemakers. But notice there's a word of caution here at the end of verse 8. But let them not turn back to folly. Don't be stupid. Don't turn back to your sin. So I was looking at this passage, I, I got this mental image of the, what this little section is talking about, this turning back to folly. It's like this, or there's one way to, one way to image it. Let's say you're, it's a hot day, you're thirsty, you're sweaty, you're dirty, you find this magnificent fountain bubbling up. Let's say it's eight feet tall, a little mini geyser. And it's just clean, pure mountain water, just washing over you, cleansing you. You open your mouth and you drink it and you're satisfied. And then over here you see a mud puddle full of some, you know, just dirt and mud. And you go, huh, 
that looks good. You stick your face in the mud, and you go, oh, that tasted awful. Let me do it again. Let me do that. That's the folly of sin. When you turn from the living God to something that cannot satisfy you, as the prophet Jeremiah said, broken cisterns that just always run empty, always run dry. So the Lord says, don't turn back to the mud puddles of your life. Where are the mud puddles that you run to for comfort, for satisfaction, for fulfillment? They might be good things, but if they try to make them an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. But verse 9 doesn't leave us there. Verse 9 in this section says, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. I love that. It's near to those who fear him. It's near to those who want it. It's near to those who are open to him. It's near to those who humble, him, humble themselves to him and admit their need. <clears throat> now, the psalm could end here. It's just textually, it's a really nice unit from verses 1 to 9. Notice how that first line, Lord, you restore your, you are favorable to your land. The end of verse 9, that your glory may dwell in our land. Really nice place to end. Very decent psalm. Well, here's the thing. God doesn't just do nice. God doesn't just do decent. Our God is lavish in his love and mercy. So verse 10 begins this section which I call, Oh my, look what's coming. Verse 10 and 11. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that these four attributes of God in verse 10, don't, don't try to parse them out. Don't try to, to, try to precisely define them because it's, this is poetry. This is poetic. And it's pointing to something. It's pointing to the lavish love of God. Verse 11, the faithfulness springing up from the ground, I think representing us, representing humanity, representing creation. And then righteousness looks down from the sky, earth and heaven meeting, God and humanity being united. Again, it's poetry, it's rich, it's evocative, it's uncareful. But I think it's pointing to the lavish love of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, St. Paul put it this way. To believers in Jesus, he said, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is the lavish love of God. This is like nuptial love. This is like the love of a bride and groom in the wedding ceremony where they turn to each other and kiss and the crowd goes wild. Now it's important to note that in the scripture, the gospel story does not say God kisses us with his love because we are so lovable. No. God kisses us with his love in order to make us lovable. That's what he did for Israel. That's what he'll do for us. And that's where we get to the sons of Korah. So I checked out my where I'm going with this. I checked this out with Dr. Andy Abernathy. He said, yeah, you can go with that. I think that fits. So I feel like I'm on safe ground. So the sons of Korah in Numbers chapter 16, their dad or their 
maybe their granddad. Well, they were the sons of Korah, so their dad led a revolt against Moses and ultimately against the Lord, led a rebellion with participate in this rebellion with 250 other people. The ground opened up. The Lord judged them. He had to judge it swiftly and severely. So the ground opened up and swallowed them in judgment. And here are the sons of Korah writing worship songs. I love that. Isn't that what God does? Your dad is an egomaniac whose life ended in tragedy. But just Give me a little room to work here, God says, and I'm going to do something. God says, I don't care. Sons of Korah, you're not bad enough. You don't have enough skeletons in your closet for me to work. God still says that today. You embezzled some money. You look at porn. You had an abortion. You fathered a child. And then you walked away, and you let that woman have an abortion. You're not bad enough. You blew up your marriage. You murdered somebody. You want to murder somebody. You're not bad enough. You want really badly to be a good person, but you just feel so dead inside. And sometimes you feel like a fake a phony. Maybe you just feel that way. Maybe you really are. You live a double life. Or maybe you're just cold and self-righteous, and you're so glad you're not one of those people I just mentioned, and you're in more trouble than any of those people I just mentioned, but you're still not bad enough. There are consequences to sin. And I have to live with some of the consequences of my sins for the rest of my life. There are amends that need to be made for our sins. There is this word of don't return to your folly. That's all part of repentance. But you are not bad enough to receive the words of St. Paul who said this is a trustworthy and sure statement that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. He wasn't bad enough, and neither are you. God doesn't love you, kiss you with his love because you're so lovable, but in order to make you lovable. Verse 13, the psalm ends here. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And and I love how one Old Testament scholar says the psalm moves from basking in God's love to following him into the world. He's got footsteps, follow him. And in terms of what I'm saying, might be not the exact meaning of this psalm, but I think it applies, I think it's a good application. I want to follow you, Lord into kissing this world that's so flawed and broken and sometimes evil and sometimes vile, violent and sometimes so sad and sometimes so lonely and angry and hostile. I want to join you, Lord Jesus, in kissing this world with your love because it's so easy to turn away in disgust. It's so easy to throw up our hands and just say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I just want to withdraw. I want to retreat. I want to walk away. 
And the Lord says, no, I want to heal you. And I want to kiss you and I want to strengthen you and I want to love you and I want to nourish you so that you can follow in my footsteps. But first, begin here. This is the first thing we do. We gather around the Lord's table. And why is that so important? Well, I had this sneaking suspicion that somewhere in church history, there was a reference to the Eucharist being the kiss of Jesus. And sure enough, I spent 30 seconds Googling it, and I popped something, a quote from Ambrose, a fourth century bishop, who said, you see the wonderful sacrament, talking about the Lord's Supper, and you may say, may Christ give me a kiss. I love that. Verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you and the sons of Korah and the Lord Jesus say, yes, the Lord can do that. Nothing has to stay the same. Everything can be changed. Others found new life. So can you. I pray that at some point this month, this week, today, before the service is over, you will say, Lord Jesus, revive me again. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.